Welcome to After All, the cross-generational podcast dedicated to discovering and rediscovering the social, political, and personal impact of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. I'm your host, Ariel Fisher. And I'm Sylvia McCon. And welcome to the show. Uh, this week, we are looking at episode 19, We Closed in Minneapolis. Frustrated playwright Murray has his play accepted by the Twin Cities Playhouse, and Ted and Mary join the cast. Uh, the episode was directed by Jay Sandrich and written by Kenny Solms and Gail Parent. Uh, we mentioned this in the uh, last week's episode, and you said, "Oh, Gail Parent," because you knew you knew the name. I did. She's a well-known um, um, uh, screenwriter and uh, uh, author, mm-hmm. and I seem to recall reading her book, and I think it's called something like Sheila Levine is uh, Dead and Living in New York. Huh. And I somehow it strikes a familiar note that I may have read 40 years ago. Which is entirely possible. She had quite the prolific career. She, she wrote for the Carol, uh, the Carol mm-hmm. Burnett Show, mm-hmm. uh, the Tim Conway Show, a little bit for the Bill Cosby Show. For This is the only episode she wrote for the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Sons and Daughters, all sorts of stuff. She did a ton. So wrote a lot for the Golden Girls, which is pretty fun. So she, yeah, she was kind of all over the place, which is really awesome. It's always really nice to see women in those kinds of positions. Mm -hmm. So this was, this was an interesting episode. Very apropos to your life. Very apropos to my life. Yes. My life and Bob's life. So Murray is, you know, he, he writes for the, for the news, obviously, but he has aspirations of becoming a playwright and he's written this script and it's consistently rejected. And this episode in and of itself brings up some really interesting concepts as opposed to, you know, the idea of supplementing your career with something creative. And also at the same time, kind of, I guess, a comparable notion to something that we all kind of, well, many people deal with today, especially in my general age bracket, that the job we work during the day is not necessarily the career we want for the future. This is true. And that we have a day job to supplement our aspirations. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because at the very beginning, the, the, the guy who works in the, in the mailroom is delivering mail and he delivers what they assume is the rejected script, is Murray's rejected script that turns out to be accepted. And he says to Mary how, you know, well, I've written some things and like he gets all kind of excited about that and that he, he, he has different hopes and aspirations. And she asks what for and he says, well, your job. So, which is pretty funny. Which is pretty funny. And Mary goes in to talk to Lou and they're talking about this potentially rejected script and everything or screenplay or play. Play. play is an actual play, play play. I'm so used to talking about screenplays that it's like, oh no no, this is something. It's a this live is a theater play. And Lou asks Mary, he's like, well, well, what do you want to do? Like, I wrote, you know, Ted has this 
stage play, this one-man show that he wanted to do, or, so, or no, a TV show, was it, that he was saying? I think it was a TV show do? called The Ted Baxter the, Show. Yeah, and Mary says, well, what's it about? He says, I don't know. Nothing. What he gave me was the title. Zero. That's <laughs> all he had. And Lou says, I wrote a book about uh, my time in Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal. And she goes, oh, it's it's funny because it's such a throwaway, and that hap- he says that. And, and it I sounds went, so serious. Well, because I'm like, oh, my God, you were in Guadalcanal? How is this not something that we've dealt with already? Do you know, do you know Guadalcanal? No. Guadalcanal uh, was the, like, the Battle of Guadalcanal was from August 7th, 1942 to February 9th, 1943, was the first major major offensive by the Allied forces against Japan. After Pearl Harbor. Exactly. Oh, and I see. And it was... Brutal. Devastating. For the uh, For the Americans, brutal. for the Japanese, for both? For both. For both. It was just... Okay. It was just brutal carnage mm. and like one of it's it's up there as one of the most written about battles of, of world war ii like especially on the pacific stage sure um if you've ever watched or if you've oh. ever watched the the miniseries the pacific which is the kind of part the of world war ii in on the on pacific, the pacific stage. stage yeah right. they cover it guadalcanal mm. very thoroughly and it's absolutely devastating and horrifying to see but if you haven't, it's well worth watching. So mm-hmm. he says this, and I'm kind of like, oh, holy shit, Lou. How haven't you mentioned this before? And he's talking more about it. And, oh, yeah, they, you know, nobody nobody wanted it. And they said, it, you know, it was hard to take it seriously and this, that, and the other. And Mary asks why. He says, well, I was there in 1958. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But they're talking about this idea of future aspirations. And Lou asks Mary, he says, well, what do you want to do? And she kind of looks sheepish and kind of just says, well, you know, I'd eventually, I'd like to be a wife and a mother. And Lou rolls his eyes. Which is really funny. I didn't catch the eye roll. Oh, yeah. I didn't catch the eye roll. He kind of looks away from her and just, ugh, like. Which is on. really interesting because for, for a an older male in 1970 or 71 to roll his eyes at a young uh, ambitious, intelligent woman mm-hmm. about her aspirations of being a wife and mother. Yeah, it's like wow, you can do you can do better than that. That's yeah. that's that's not enough. Well, he clearly has more faith in her than she than has she has in, in herself. herself. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's interesting because that thread of that idea of a lack of faith in oneself and and that lack of confidence kind of runs through the entire episode, mm-hmm. and especially with Murray because the play gets accepted. And they go and they put it on and Mary acts in it and everybody thinks she's great and Ted acts in it and everybody can't find a nice way to say you suck. <laughs> and he keeps asking people, what did you think of me? What did you think of me? And I'm like, shut up. How can you be so clueless about your lack of talent? Low IQ. Yeah. Bottom Pretty line. much. Yeah. So then, I mean, what struck me as interesting about this episode is... This whole idea of rejection and criticism, like all of these concepts that this episode is exploring are really familiar to me. Yes. The idea of, you know, you pit, for me, like you pitch stories, you pitch articles, you pitch reviews or anything like that, and 90% of them are rejected. Mm-hmm. The idea that the, the life of a writer, the life of a creative type is... It's a life of rejection. Exactly. And you have to develop a thick enough skin to not take it personally and not to think of yourself mm-hmm. as a failure. Well, exactly. Yes. It's this, this whole notion that, you know, if, if you're not, if you're rejected off the hop, if like your first pitch or your first story or your first novel or your first play 
isn't accepted and immediately published or put on or anything like that, that you're a failure. Mm -hmm. And that's completely not true. The amount of things, the, the amount of great, uh, great things that were rejected off the hop, I mean, you look at someone like, I, I like using J.K. Rowling as an example. She's the, she's the, the current day poster girl, sorry for the word, uh, of poster someone, child. the poster child for someone who was, you know, really down and out mm-hmm. and then came back with a vengeance. Oh, yeah. With and something she, that caught the imagination of millions and millions of people. Oh, yeah. The world so, over. Yeah. And she, you know, she was newly divorced and she was a single mother and she was, I think, like, basically living on food stamps. Uh, pretty much. Completely destitute. Yeah. And at that point, she figured, you know, she'd spent her whole life studying, like, history and art and anthropology and, like, all of those things. She was interested in... Uh, like theology and stuff like that and her parents always thought that that's useless you're never going to make a career out of it but she pursued what she wanted to and she wound up completely destitute and at that point and she had and she had the idea in her mind for Harry Potter she she knew she wanted to write but she put it off because she kept thinking she wasn't good enough or she wasn't capable or Mm. it wasn't for her or it wasn't this or it's interesting so she wrote out of necessity yeah and uh, she, she she felt like she had to write herself out of her circumstance. Yeah. And that that was the only way she was going to change her circumstance because it's something that she had always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was it was a real passion, a real drive. And at that point, it, she literally she was at rock bottom. She literally had nothing to lose, and so she wrote it. And it was and it was rejected. It wasn't yeah. accepted off the hop. It was rejected by a few different publishing houses until finally it was accepted, and then it was published, and then the world changed. Yes. And the world really did change. Oh, completely. Completely yeah. changed. Which isn't to say that every aspiring writer is going to be J.K. Rowling. No, unfortunately not. No, it, but, it, but it's also not to say that every aspiring, that no aspiring writer is ever going to get published. Right. Uh, you may not change the world, but you can push and you can pursue what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And despite the rejections that come... You have to be able to say, okay, one more rejection, off you go. Yeah. It, I know it's still a good play or I know it's still a good yeah. screenplay or a book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. So a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. uh, we read a book that was self-published by um, someone who is an acquaintance, a friend of one of my book club buddies. Yeah. So the author gave or sold us Mm-hmm. all copies of the book which we read and then discussed yeah and he actually came to our book club meeting about the book however the book was awful so what did you guys say it was very awkward but we talked about the larger themes not about the quality of the writing right. or about um what on earth possessed him to write this schlock and was and it was schlock. It was schlock. It like, was just so, poorly. It was so poorly the, written. It was a an improbable storyline. So the material was bad. All of it was bad. The material was bad. The way it was written was bad. It was all bad. So the, so I'm not surprised that it was self published because I can understand why no one would um, want to publish it. Mm-hmm. So that the flip side of saying you have talent, persevere. 
is what if you don't have talent and someone needs to tell you? Well, it's... The, don't quit your day job. The other thing is that the idea of talent is a fallacy. Okay. This idea that... And it's something that some of the greatest writers of all time will attest to. It's something that Stephen King says all the time. That talent, this idea of, a, of, of an innate talent, is bullshit. It doesn't it's really a craft. exist. It's Everything is a craft. Everything mm. has to be worked at. The amount of people in the world who have that innate gift that simply are is, between. Yeah. Are, are, it's a microscopic percent. Everybody has to work at it. They may be born with with some ability or a really you know creative imagination or yeah. whatever and that even, and that's fine but even the greatest ability has to be honed you may be Fair. born with a faster metabolism but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to be stronger and faster because you're naturally thinner you know that doesn't mean you're naturally fitter it just sure. means that you process things differently. It's the, the same thing goes for a craft. Yeah. And when you think of, say, and Stephen King is also a really good example of this. He was, he started writing when he was a teenager, mm-hmm. and he started writing short stories, and they were mostly rejected. He has hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of rejections. Sure. Just so many. And he's kept some of them, and probably not as much anymore, but he eventually things got published his first book was Carrie and at that point he had already written a few books under a pseudonym and he had published some short stories Mm. but it wasn't until well after Carrie even at that point if I'm not mistaken he wrote a bunch of short stories leading up to Carrie while he was working like the night shift at like a an industrial washing plant Oh, wow. And he was also an English teacher for a long time. Really? And worked in, like, factories, like, mm-hmm. real blue-collar jobs. Like, he lived in Maine, right? Mm-hmm. So he was working what Maine lower-class people worked, which were blue-collar jobs that were really hard. And he came home, and he and he wrote every night. And he, then he went to... And he had a wife, and he had two kids, and he was responsible for supporting them for the most part. His wife stayed home right. and took care of the kids. And that's... That's another thing you have to think about. You know, there's these other factors. It's that the balance. You have to you have to put food on the table. You have to pay the rent. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's interesting in 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 the episode mm-hmm. that they all have these uh, creative aspirations as a sideline mm-hmm. to their, as Murray puts it, my rotten job. Yeah. Uh, which I, I suppose writing for Ted Baxter, it's not, it's not that, the, that the job of writing is a rotten job for him. I think it's the writing for this very third-rate news program. You're creating good content for a brainless, yeah. For a brainless face. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which can be incredibly frustrating. There's actually a really great, if, there's a, if there are any writers listening, which I kind of hope there are, uh, or creative types, the Iowa Writers Workshop, if you mm. haven't heard of it, the I Iowa have. Writers Workshop, yeah. like generally out there to the public, the Iowa Writers Workshop is one of the most coveted writing workshops in the world. Um, and it's in Iowa. as you, you, Like you've heard of this. Obviously. Yes, I have. You know about this. Yes, and I'm not a writer, so yes. No, it's like the big cheese. They have a podcast. And it's their... Do they make cheese? No, that's Wisconsin. That's Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> Different state. But they have... <laughs> <coughs> I'm sorry, our American listeners. Yeah. This is Canada. But they have the 
they're a podcast for it that's actually really wonderful and there there are talks that they have guests come in and give and about about the craft of writing yes oh isn't that nice and a bunch of different fields and it's been like some of it is creative writing mm-hmm. and some of it is nonfiction, and some of it's poetry and yada 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 but a lot of it is hugely applicable and there's this one episode that I listened to that was unbelievable it was with an author named Marcos Villatoro who okay. has written a, a bunch of he's he's written a few nonfiction uh, or a few uh, like novels. He's also a guest on an NPR podcast and like he's I'm I'm not doing him justice. Look him up. It's uh, Marcos Villatoro. So V I L L A T O R O. Villatoros. Villatoros. Gotcha. So well, no S. That was Villatoro. He, the village of the bull. He, I guess yeah. That yes. would be what it literally yeah. translates to. And he was talking about rejection. Oh. And he, his entire podcast episode was about that the, like the fine art of accepting criticism and accepting rejection and the necessity of it mm-hmm. as growth. And it's funny because Mary even says at one point in the episode, you know, I wish they would be a bit more constructive instead of just saying no thanks, you know, well, thank you so much for your hard effort and your this and your that and yeah. everything. It's a nice thought. Yeah. But that's not realistic. That's it, not the way no. it works. Especially it, when you have to assume that, that anyone receiving unsolicited manuscripts or plays or screenplays gets hundreds. Mm-hmm. And, and yet. And they're all anonymous mm-hmm. aspiring artists in the background. And yet sometimes you can find very helpful advice in rejections like i've had i've had some constructive criticism from the globe and mail when i pitched and it's just not what they're looking for Mm -hmm. and even if it's just you get uh, constructive criticism on what they're looking for like being told we just don't generally publish this type of stuff but thank you it's a learning curve yeah you might know what that publication is looking for, but you know you slip up. You send them something that you think maybe they'll go for. It's a long shot, but it's possible, and they don't. Right. And that's fine. Like yeah. it happens, but it's so important to just keep going. And eventually, and you know, Murray had given up, and they accepted it. And this this little production company, this little stage, wanted to put on his play, and like you never know. But then it was a flop. But. It was a, it was a flop. We don't really know if. It, well, first of all, Ted Baxter was the lead actor, yeah. which in itself is just you know just a nightmare. But also the theater critic mm-hmm. that came to see it on the first night really slammed it. Oh yeah. But Mary, in her very resourceful and perky way that she has, mm-hmm. went and found, I guess, in her local library. Um, some historical background on this critic who in fact slammed My Fair Lady when it first came out yep. and slammed, I think, Death, Rich, of, a Death of a Salesman and, and Richard Burton's Hamlet. And so apparently this critic hated everything. Mm-hmm. So the, the world of criticism is a very subjective or it can be, depending yeah. on who the critic is, well, can be a very subjective, well, that's murky the, world. That's the thing that's so important also to remember is this idea that a critic knows best. That's not true. The job of a critic isn't to tell you definitively 
that this is of the utmost quality or this is not. Um, or something is worth your time or something is not. It's to tell you what they determine to be the value of a certain piece. It's to guide the public. It's to give them a glimpse into a more specifically educated viewpoint. And the thing that a lot of critics forget is that very thing. And that the, the advice that they're giving, the criticisms that they're, lo that they're lobbying against these things, are based on, they're based on their education, they're based on their experience, but they're also based on their taste, which is largely subjective. It's very difficult to separate personal taste from, right. from finite quality. Quality is generally a subjective thing. I think too, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is an area of expertise that you have and I don't, my feeling is that when you are doing a critique of a movie, a play, a book, a whatever, mm -hmm. there's a certain structure to what you are critiquing. You can, you can uh, break it down into its component parts, uh, the, the, the overall theme, the, the writing style, mm -hmm. how the actors, if that's applicable, um, mm -hmm. do their part mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a structure to how you deconstruct your your criticism which is very separate from the subjective nature of what you're doing in the first place or I, I would think that the structure puts more objectivity on it it can to some degree to some degree it can it's also very difficult to remove yourself Besides sure. from just the structure. Like, the structure does help, but the structure isn't necessarily always in place. It, that depends on the writer, if you have that luxury of being yeah. able to dictate that. Or, But most often, it depends on the publication. Different publications want different things. Some people just want a quick synopsis and a few sound bites. Mm -hmm. And some people want an in-depth analysis. And then that, that changes things. And there's you know, a million different variants in between and on either side. But... it. And you also get people like this reviewer. You get people like Rex Reed, who is the notorious... I hate everything. He hates everything everyone loves and loves everything everyone hates. Because that makes him special? Well, there's... Yeah. There's a very strange... Criticism attracts a very strange breed of human. <laughs> and more often than not, they are of a questionable, if unsavory, nature. They are... You're speaking about yourself here, dear. <laughs> I'm not... Some, some critics. Not you. And not me. Not a lot of people that I know. I know a mm -hmm. lot of writers who are phenomenal at what they do, and they take it seriously from the vantage point of trying to... Ideally, critics like... The, the goal of a critic, at least in my mind and in the minds of I know others, is to in some way guide and mediate the culture is to say that this is do that this is this is good this is valuable from a cultural this, standpoint this, this is, is worth your time to pay attention listen read watch and that it can change things and that right. it can shape if you get things like if you get a movie like get out you're not going to be critical of it because everyone loves it or you shouldn't be you're going to sing its praises for you know offering a satirical look at uh, racial prejudice and racism in America. You're going to look at 
race tensions between interracial couples and the way people are perceived in that vantage point. Like you're going to look at these other aspects ideally as a way of saying that this material, this art that's been created has real value and mm -hmm. that it can guide the culture. And it matters. The culture. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it's the, the, the creators of art and the critics of art have, have to work together in some regard. Now, that's not saying that you, you know, if something is bad or it is harmful or it is damaging or it's just crappy, yeah. then yeah, you should say so because that's your job. Yeah. But it's, it's also about, you know, that idea of guiding it. Now, when I say there are some unsavory characters, there's a lot of people who get into criticism for no other reason than, hey, I get to see free movies or, hey, I get, to, I get free copies of books really? and people will lavish me with stuff and they'll treat me a certain way. And there's this false sense of importance and an inflation of ego that comes from that mm. because the public, the you know, the press reps need you to cover it in order to get uh, exposure. Exposure. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. publications, you know, there, there's the the creators of the art need you to cover it. It's a whole it so subculture. Get, yes. There's yeah. a lot of back and forth and give and take, and it's. It is sometimes unsavory, unsavory. And, you, and you do yeah. get people like Rex Reed and like this critic in the show who are trying to be shit disturbers for no other reason than a false f sense of importance yeah. and the desire to rub people the wrong way. To say, well, I you like this? Here's why you're wrong and stupid. And here's why this is actually shitty. And it gets snide. Yeah. And it gets backhanded and it's just unnecessary. And that's kind of what happens here. And that's kind of what Mary brings to the foreground is this idea that not all criticism is gospel. And no. it isn't. It isn't at all. No. It's intended as kind of a guiding hand and not necessarily as, a, you know, a, a be-all and end-all. It's not, it's not the law. It's not a barometer by which the worth of the creative endeavor should be measured. No. It's one of many ways that you might want to look at something, but it's not the only way. Exactly. Yeah, completely. So it was interesting. And then, of course, mm -hmm. Mary being Mary plays her part well because there are not too many things she does poorly. No. And it was the only bright light, although she she herself said to to Murray prior to the play being put on, my character is a dum-dum. Oh, yeah. That's the other fun thing yeah. is this idea of creative licensing. Yes. And uh, taking creative liberties with certain people and yes. their, their uh, representations. Because Murray's written, Murray's play is about a newsroom. And Mary is playing a character named Mary, who works in her same position and who behaves like her. But she's a bit of a flake. And, yeah, she says to Murray, she's like, well, I don't really... I mean, clearly it's based on me. And he gives the standard excuse. Well, you know, I'm a writer. And some of it is you. And some of it is not you. And some of it is not you. It's like, okay, well, whatever. Okay, fine. But, and that, you know, that raises a whole other slew of issues. This idea of, of taking, you know. Taking pieces out of real life and putting them down on paper or in, yeah. on film. And what people are okay with and what's yeah. not. And what you're allowed to do and what you're not. And, you know, all of those things that all kind of factors in. But Murray is taking from, you know... From his life. You write what you know. Yeah, And that's always. what he knows. I know what that... I know where that came from. Do you? Little Women. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, it's not the saying pre- no, creates No, of course, but, but yeah, because she was writing schlocky mystery stories. She, Joe Marsh. Well, yeah, she, she, Joe Marsh. Well, yeah, she was writing like high fantasy and stuff like that. Right. And what's funny is at first, what she says, she misquotes it. She says, "The trick is, the trick is, Amy, never write what you know." Ah. So she wants to do something totally different, and in fact, it's the opposite. It's right. the most genuine work, the truest work, comes from the stuff that you know. that you know best. Which is, which doesn't necessarily mean that writing, you know, a day a, a verbatim account of your day at work is is art or valuable. No. However, the story of your life, the story of everyone's life, has has potential for being a very good story. I think so. Yeah, I think it's well when you look at. You know, if you go to a Chapters or an Indigo or a Barnes and Noble or what what have you, as the case may be, wherever you live in the world, and you look at the memoir section and you look mm-hmm. at the words and letters, or uh, like nonfiction and things like that, and there's the shelves are littered with human experience. Yeah, with that idea of my story is worth telling. Yeah, and yeah. my story is worth worth reading and worth it's worth reading and of value. Every life has value, and every story has value. Yeah. You learn something from different, yeah. you know, aspects. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I am struggling currently with the confidence to write my own story. I, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I'm not that old. I don't, I, 30 years is, is a long time and simultaneously not very long. But I've, I, th- I like to think I've led a pretty interesting life thus far. I think I've... Absolutely. I've done a lot. I've seen a lot. I've been through a lot. Mm-hmm. I've experienced a great many things. But then, you know, I get in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but I'm nobody. <laughs> Nobody's, who but writes every, a memoir without accomplishing something first? Why not? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and people do. But, like, I'm not Tina Fey. I'm not Catherine Hepburn. But it doesn't have to be a memoir as such. It's a story that you're writing. It oh. happens to be your story, but it's still a story. I guess, yeah, depending on how you approach it. You can you can frame it that way. <laughs> Just make me out to be really, really fabulous in your story, okay? Oh, I will. I okay. promise. Right. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't possibly be bad. You're so <laughs> perfect and magnanimous. Yes, 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 that would be me, magnanimous. <laughs> but so that is We Closed in Minneapolis. That's episode 19. Next week we are on to episode 20. That's episode 20, guys. We will have... No, now we'll have five episodes left. I think I said that wrong last week. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Five episodes left until this is... She can count. She's 30 years old. She can can count. I can count on my fingers. It's very good. And my toes if I'm not wearing socks. So next week, the episode is... Hi! In the hospital for a tonsillectomy, Mary must share a room with a very grumpy patient. And that grumpy patient is none other... Than the incomparable Pat Carroll. Yes. I keep forgetting her name. I don't know why. It's the very voice, name. The voice of Ursula. Yeah. The Sea Witch. The Sea Witch. She did a ton of voice work, actually. She had a really prolific career. Has. She's still alive. She's 90 years old. She outlived Mary. Uh, but she had a very has a very prolific career, specifically doing voice work. She's got a great voice. Great voice. She's got a great voice. Oh, yeah. And she can affect it in different ways, too, as she did. Because she doesn't sound... I don't think in this episode the way she would because she would have been younger. So she wouldn't sound the same way as she did when she was doing Ursula. True. Yeah. Well, but by, I'm trying to think of when did The Little Mermaid come out? 88. 
89. Came out in 89, 89. and this is 1970, so 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's strange. true. But many packs of cigarettes later. Yeah. <laughs> lots of cigarettes and lots of scotch. The episode High is directed by Jay Sandrich and written by Treva Silverman, our glorious, darling, lovely Treva Silverman, who we adore. So tune in next week. And in the meantime, if you haven't yet, go over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. Uh, rate and review the show as well. Every little bit helps us become a little bit more visible. And please head on over to any social media platform. You can find us at After All, Ca- uh, at After All Podcast on, I- on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all over the place. And you can also shoot us an email if you like what we're doing, you want to let us know, or if you have an idea for you know certain themes that you'd like us to discuss on a certain episode, shoot us an email at afterallpodcast at gmail.com and let us know. And we are, of course, a uh, Modern Superior podcast, so head on over and see what other great content they're creating. And in the meantime, we will see you next week.